Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, O oh God, that we could be here on this Lord's Day in your presence to worship you. O oh God, the, just the privilege that we have to, to sing and to pray and to speak of the wonderful things that you have done. Lord, I, I just ask now that as we are still, as we are quiet, as we are here this morning, that you would give us ears to hear as you speak to us. Oh Lord, please guard us from approaching such lofty things with small minds, but we pray that we may see these things through the eyes of faith and to trust in you. Lord, may we delight and glory in your name. We ask this in Christ. Amen. Well, we are just about done going through the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, we've, we've talked about uh, the need to believe in Scripture alone as it is our only authority, uh, to trust in Christ alone, uh, by faith alone, and today we're going to look at by grace. And so next week, all we have to, to cover yet is uh, the topic of to the glory of God alone. But as we, uh, as we turn to this topic of grace alone today, I do want to just remind you what I have said all the way through this, that in the church of the Reformation, the time of the Reformation, it's not that the church did not believe in salvation by grace. It's just that they didn't believe in salvation by grace alone. And so as we uh, turn to the letter of the Ephesians, which I, I just think is a very inspiring and a glorious letter, uh, Paul reminds us that our salvation that we have is truly by grace alone. And if you look at chapter one and just sort of skim down through that chapter, you see how God explains how he has saved his people, that the Father creates a people for himself by choosing them and setting his love upon them, that Jesus Christ actually comes and redeems them, purchases a people for God. He purchased their salvation. And then we see later on in the chapter uh, that the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to the lives of his people and uh, the promises to, to keep them to the very end. But then we come to chapter two, and it's a little bit of a reality check. It's a little bit of an opportunity to see ourselves for who we really are apart from Jesus Christ. And we need to see ourselves for who we really are because it's not uncommon for us as humans to think that we have some sense of who we are. And innately, we think that we have a handle on what kind of a person that we are. And, and then you take that and you sort of pair that together with the modern climate in which we live that's very optimistic about ourselves and sees us as very good. I mean, you think about it, we live in a culture that tries to, what, build up self-esteem, wants to build people up and cause them to think uh, well of themselves. And so you hear things like this, that you can be anything that you want to be. With uh, hard work, anything is possible. You know, you can, don't you hear sometimes people even say, kids, if you want, you can grow up to be president of the United States. And so we are incredibly optimistic about our abilities and who we are. 
And but it's you know we look at the landscape of our culture, uh, the things seem to be changing in in one sense. I mean, circumstances are harder than they've been in the past. And I think for the first time in many generations, we have a generation before us that we're not certain we'll be better off than what we are, that we might think that the world in which our kids grow up in will be much different than the one that we've grown up in. And I don't know that that's all bad. I think it's sort of good in order to see that that bubble burst of thinking so positively about ourselves. But yet, still in our culture today, we see people as basically good. And if there is any quote-unquote bad in our culture, it's simply because we don't know enough. You know, the environment's not right. They need more education. And so education has become the savior for our culture. We just need to build more schools. We need to have better education processes for prisoners in prison, because if they just knew the right thing to do, then they would do it. Now, there are others, I think, who are more realistic, and they might view our society as uh, sick, at least. You know, they would admit that we have problems, but, but even then, they don't see the situation as hopeless. People are alive and able, and you know what they say, where there's life, there's hope, and so, you know, it might take some hard work, but if we just band together, you know, we can do it and we can build a better society. And, you know, we're always moving towards that better society. And unfortunately, I would say that much of Christianity even views the spiritual problem of mankind this way, that, there's a, that there is a problem with God. But if we would just apply ourselves to the situation, if we would just turn to God You might hear this. If we would just do our part, then God can do his part and we can solve the problem. And we hear that all the time on Sunday mornings from pulpits. But how does God view us? How does God see us? Well, as we look at Ephesians chapter two, verse one, Paul doesn't mince any words. You know, here Paul sort of gives us a reality check and, and helps us to see ourselves as God sees us. Look at verse one. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walk. Now see, Paul's, his view is much more bleak than that of our culture that we live in. He says that we are dead. Now the word that we used here, and I think I uh, referred to this last week, is it means a dead person. It's a corpse. You're talking about somebody in a coffin. Paul doesn't say that we're spiritually sick and that, you know, we just need God's help. If we would, you know, if we could just do so much and God could do the rest. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that we are stone cold dead, that we have no life in us whatsoever. We're not good. And because we're lifeless, there's nothing that we can do. Now, you know, Paul is speaking of all of humanity here. He he does refer to the Ephesians in verse one when he says you, but then in verse three, he applies this to everybody else in culture where he says in verse three, among whom we all once lived. So all of humanity is dead in their sins. And we we saw that last week in Romans chapter three, verses 10 through 12 and in verse 23, that none are righteous, no one seeks God, all have turned from God and sinned and fell short of the glory of God. And that's what Paul means by the fact that we're dead, that we are spiritually dead. 
we are dead to God. We want nothing, and, and for some of us, I think we want nothing even to do with God. You see, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's really drawing a contrast between the work of God in Jesus on behalf of his people in chapter 1 and, and who we really are without Christ in chapter 2. The, here the Father has devised this magnificent plan of salvation and carried it out, but it's not because we are worthy, but it's actually quite the opposite. Paul wants even the Christians at Ephesus to see clearly that those who are now Christians who gather to worship the Lord, those who read their Bible and pray daily to God for strength and rejoice in Him, to those who love God and treat other people as more important than themselves, were not always that way. They were spiritually dead. And some of us may have grown up in the church and you were spiritually dead when you were younger, but you may have maybe the testimony that my wife has, and her testimony is wonderful. She said, you know, I don't ever know a time when I didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean, though, that we're not born spiritually dead, and we saw that back in uh, Psalm 51 last week when David said that we are conceived in sin, but sometimes it is that the Lord works in the hearts of of our kids, even from a very young age. And if that's the case, praise the Lord. And we should rejoice in that, that God's spirit is at work in the life of our families. However, some of us may have grown up in the church. And even though you've heard a lot about God, you really don't care about God and your heart's desire is not for him. Really what you want more than anything and kids, this is really important for you to hear. Sometimes you can grow up in the church and what you really want is not to do what God says. You want to do what you want to do. And sometimes you can see the, whether the work of the Holy Spirit is in your heart by what it is that you desire. Do you desire what God wants or do you desire what you want? Now, um, I think we need to understand that going to church is not the thing that's going to make us alive. You know, without the living grace of God, we will not turn to him. So while we might think that we're alive because, you know, my, I go to church and I'm around Christians and I do these things, without God's intervention, we are not. And I think the best illustration to explain how we can be spiritually dead when everything within us tells us that we're alive is zombies. Now, I know that's a weird illustration, and you may have to forgive me for such a graphic illustration, but zombies are dead, but they walk around like they're alive. And zombies have desires, maybe not good desires, not desires we would want, but they have desires nonetheless. And that's what Paul says about us. We thought that we were innately good. We thought that we understood who we are. And our assessment of us is that we either were good, maybe a little bit sick. We just need a little help from God. But the reality is, Paul says that we are dead in our sins. Apart from Christ, we thought we were alive, but really we're nothing more than the walking dead. And the reason why we're dead is, as he says in verse 1, is because we, uh, we are in our trespasses and sins. Uh, we were dead towards God, but alive towards wickedness. Uh, 
toward the way we wanted to live. We existed ex as zombies, but we thought that we were alive. Well, that deadness that Paul refers to uh, is a, a lifestyle of always choosing to act according to our own sinful nature. We don't choose what pleases God, but instead what makes us happy. We see this, this deadness all around us. We see it in our neighborhoods. We see it at work. We see it amongst family and friends. We even see it at school. Uh, we see those who are living to please themselves rather than God. So even when people do good, they do not glorify the Lord. You know, they, they may do good because it makes them feel better about themselves. It may be that they do good even for the good of humanity to help somebody else out. But their ultimate purpose is to not do so to glorify God. And so even in their goodness, our goodness is filthy rags. But so, so people are not basically good or striving for the best as our society tells us. But they are self-centered. They are caught in their sins. They're dead in their trespasses and hostile to God. And not only that, but we see in this text as well that they are ensnared or, or enslaved or, or, or trapped or captured to, to the world and the devil and the flesh. And you see that as it talks about how we walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. And in all this, we were unable to do anything about it because we were a corpse. Now, it's interesting that he says here in verse 3 that we were by nature children of wrath. Now, the world doesn't want to talk about the wrath of God, and it doesn't take it seriously and doesn't want us to do so either, because the world doesn't want us to take sin seriously, nor does it want us to think about eternity, and it doesn't want us to think about God's eternal judgment. And Satan definitely doesn't want that, uh, lest we might repent and turn to the Lord. But we need to understand that God's wrath is real. And all of those who live as spiritual zombies apart from God will, not might, not maybe, but will incur the wrath of God. Now, when we talk about the wrath of God, we're not talking about our, like our wrath. The wrath of, uh, the, if somebody has wrath upon you, usually it means that they become angry with you for a short period of time and then it's over with. But with God, his wrath is eternal. His judgment is forever. And the Bible describes God's judgment as casting those who are um, in their sins into the lake of fire for, for all eternity. And it's, under, it's important that we understand who we are. And, and I know that, that this is true, but I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting that Paul is writing this to who? It's not an evangelistic message. He's writing it to the church. He said, you guys need to understand who you were. And so once the reality of that hits us, that we are not good 
And, and that is our temptation, even as Christians, to ha- somehow think, yeah, okay, I was a sinner, but do we truly believe that we are worthy to receive the wrath of God? I've oftentimes wondered, not that God would ever do this because God doesn't change, but what if he changed his mind and he said, you know, I decided not to give you salvation. Instead, I'm going to send you to hell. I wonder how many people in the church would be upset about that and would say, now, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. Or would we say, you know, Lord, you are exactly right. Oh, I don't want to spend eternity in hell apart from you. But, you know, you are right to do this because I do deserve that. My heart is that wicked and I am dead in my sin. Now, I think the reason why Paul wanted to drive that point home for for them to understand their sin and for us to understand our sin is so that we might understand the grace that God has shown to us, that we are alive in Jesus Christ. And as abruptly as Paul sort of introduces humanity's condition of being dead in their sins, so he sort of abruptly introduces God's intervention for his people. In verse 4, look and see what he says. But God, those are the two most beautiful words in all of the New Testament, in the face of our hopeless situation, where not only could we not do anything for ourselves, but we didn't want to do anything for ourselves. We were enslaved by the wickedness of this world, and we liked it. And it was in the midst of that that God intervened. And you see those two small words, but God, sets the the desperate condition of fallen man against the gracious initiative of God. And in light of our helplessness, God comes to our rescue. Now, now this is contrary to conventional wisdom. Even though Paul tells us that we are dead in our sins, you know, I think we oftentimes think we are alive. We just think, you know, if we do our part, we're, we're okay. We think that we're good, I think, to some degree and deserve things from God. We deserve more from God than we actually have. And, and you see that sometimes when... When God puts pressure upon a Christian and takes them through trials, and sometimes as we go through those difficulties, we begin to look at the Lord and say, Lord, why are you doing this? As if, I don't deserve this. I deserve to be treated better than this. But I think we also see it sometimes even, and I hate to say this, but even in reformed circles, I hear Christians complain because preachers talk too much about sin. And it's like, can we just get beyond the sin stuff? And can we talk about something else? And I fear that such a tiresome view of our sin insinuates that our sin is not really as bad as what it is, that we are really not as bad as we are apart from Jesus Christ. But it not only, I think, shows that we have a wrong view of ourselves, but also that it denies who God is, that he is holy and he is just. And if we don't truly understand the vastness of our sin, we will never comprehend the magnitude of the sacrifice that was given for us. Amen? But Paul wants us to see that God has intervened in spite of who we are. And and we're not used to that. You know, I, I think about how many times on TV 
uh, maybe a TV show or a movie or something like that, you'll see somebody who's uh, in trouble and, and there's a hero and they need the help of the hero. And, and I'm not trying to stereotype here, but oftentimes the hero's a man and the, 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 the person in distress is a woman. So there's this damsel in distress type of theme that's, that's going on. And, and the lady doesn't let the man know that she's in trouble. But she sort of deceives him into helping her by saying, hey, you know, would you do this like it's doing it for someone else? But it's really helping her out. And when the, the hero always finds out that he's been duped, you know, it seems like, you know, and, and they'll say, well, why didn't you tell me you needed help? I would have helped you. And usually the damsel in distress says, well, I didn't tell you because I thought you wouldn't help me if you really knew the situation. And I wonder sometimes if we think that's how God functions. If he just knew who we were, maybe he wouldn't help us. But God knows exactly how bad you are. He knows exactly how bad I am. And he knows you better than than yourself. He knows you better than your best friend knows you or your parents or even your spouse. And in spite of all of that, God reaches out and he takes the initiative to intervene in your life, even when you're dead and your trespasses and your sins. God didn't require us to somehow clean our act up or, or to you know, have a trial period to see if we could be so good for a period of time. Because you know that's useless for a corpse because a corpse can't do that. You see, when we're dead in our sin, we lived in rebellion against God. We ran from him, but the good news is that God never ran from us. And brothers and sisters, I I would suggest to you that these are sweet, sweet, sweet words for us as Christians to know that there's no shoe that's going to drop. You know what I mean by that? Uh, You know, people like that, they're always living like there's going to be another shoe that's going to drop. Like, okay, I know things are going well, but I'm just waiting for that bad thing to happen, you know? And I I just know it's going to happen and then everything's going to be crushed. And some people live like that with God, that they think that, okay, yes, God loves me. But you know what? I'm just waiting for him to find out this about me. And then surely he's going to turn his back on me and he's going to reject me. But you know what? God already knows how bad you are. So there will never be another shoe that drops. The Lord knows exactly who you are. And even in that, he reached out first and took the initiative. But not only is this initiative undeserved, but it's also powerful. Look at verse five. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, what did he do? He made us alive together with Christ. We were unable, but God is not only able, but powerfully able. God takes us from being a corpse to being alive. God's power is great. And I think we need to understand that. It's not that God's like a cheerleader. You know, sometimes our kids are in a sporting event or, you know, they'll, they're, they're in, uh, you know, just something where we're watching them compete. And what do we do as parents or as aunts and uncles? Go, go, go. You can do it. You can do it. Like, you know, us cheering them on is going to help them do things better. But that's not what God has done for us. God's not our cheerleader. God is our savior. He stepped in where we could not that um, that he would provide for us. And here again, that should encourage us as Christians, because if we see any desire in our heart 
for God, any remorse in, uh, for sin that leads to repentance, any work of all towards God, who is it that's working? It's not you and me. It is the Holy Spirit. And that should cause us to rejoice, even as much as we struggle with our sin, to see that it is God that is at work in us. And how much more exciting it is to see what the Lord will do in our lives than for our spiritual well-being to depend upon us. And I think sometimes Christians don't understand that. And they, they sometimes question, they say, well, you know, have I gone too far? Have I gone too far? You know, as if we could commit sins that Christ couldn't forgive or or that we could live a life just completely incompatible with with Jesus. But remember that God is in the business of bringing dead people back to life and he helps us who are helpless. So our hope is not in us, but it is in the one outside of us. And, And notice what he does there when God when God delivers us by his power, he sort of breaks into our lives. And in verse four, we see, um, excuse me, in uh, verse, yeah, he, that he makes us alive versus being dead in our trespasses and sin. And then in verse six, um, he sets us free versus being enslaved to the world and the flesh. And he secures us forever uh, by seating us with him in the heavenly realms where we will reign with him rather than incurring the wrath of God. Do you see those parallels? To where those that are dead and their sins are dead, enslaved and under the wrath of God. Now we are made alive, set free and secure forever to rule with him. And so, and at the center of all that is Christ. Look at verse five. He made us, or even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then in verse six, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. God does nothing except through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. And so God's actions not only change our position with him, but even more fundamentally changes who we are. And there's there's three things that, that he has done. He has made us alive, he has raised us up, and he has seated us. What's the tense of those verbs? Past. This is something he's already accomplished. This is something that he's already done. And that should encourage us as believers that we live in this world as pilgrims. We live in this world as aliens and we're only traveling through this world and yet we're undergoing spiritual battles and we're struggling with sin. But Paul reminds us that our future is set because of what Christ has already accomplished. When it says that Christ will do these things, these are sure things that are going to happen for those that are his children. We don't have to wonder if they will or won't happen. So we are not defined by our sins when we're in Christ. We are not defined by our weakness when we are in Christ, but we are defined by who Jesus Christ is. That's who we are. And the good news is, is that Christ never changes, and so we will never change. And I I guess I just wonder, as we think about it, you know, what possibly could happen that could undo... um, being brought from death to life. 
In other words, if Christ has brought us from death to life and given us new life in Christ, what could possibly reverse that process and make us dead again in our sins? Nothing. I mean, John 10 says, I will give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. That's how secure our salvation is that is given to us by God's grace, not as we deserve. And why does God do this? We'll look at verse four and and verse seven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, and then in verse seven, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. You know what's not mentioned in this text? You or me. You or me. He, he did not set his affection upon us because of anything that we had done or not done. But it was purely because of his character. Because he is merciful, that because of his love, because of his grace, and because of his kindness. Because of his mercy, we are not treated the way that we deserve. And, and, and he shows his love, which we know that love is other-centered. And so God, out of his love for us, out of his concern for us, he shows us, notice what he says here, great love. Not just love, but great love. I mean, I heard a, a person talk, uh, give an illustration I thought was, was very helpful. Actually, the Greek word here for great is mega. Okay, which we can all sort of relate to that. And if you shop at Sam's Club or Costco or one of these, you know, stores where you can buy mega stuff, you know, I'm, you can just, I can just imagine the conversation between a husband and a wife. It seems like the husband's always the one that comes home with this mega package of something, you know, mega packages of toothpicks. You know, I just bought 100,000 toothpicks for $10, you know, and the wife's like, why did you buy 100,000 Toothpicks. We'll never use that many toothpicks in all of our lives. And it's like, well, you know, it's the mega pack. You know, you just I bought it because I could buy it, you know, type thing. But just think about that in terms of the love of God. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. It is more love than we could ever use. It is beyond anything that we could ever handle. So God's love is not stingy. Not only is it not stingy, it's not even ordinary. It is beyond anything that we could hope or imagine. And it is out of God's love that he died for us. And not only that, but he showed us his grace. And and we use the definition for grace of unmerited favor. And and that's true. You know, Um, you might think of Uh, God's grace is, you know, giving you uh, something when you don't deserve it. But, you know, that definition could be applied to, let's just say I want to give Joshua a cookie. And he may not deserve that cookie, but I just want to give him that cookie. Is that unmerited favor? Not really. I mean, it is, but it's really not the situation we were in. Grace is God showing his favor to those who mocked him to those who rebelled against him, to those who sinned against him. So imagine if Joshua was like taking all the food off the back table, eating all the muffins himself and not letting anybody else have any. And yet I gave him a cookie 
on top of that. That's more of a picture of the grace that God has shown to us. And not only has he shown us grace, but as we see in verse 7, also kindness as well. Now, we may not think of kindness as much of a word, especially in light of the other words that he, that he uses here to describe God's character. But kindness tells us about the goodness of God. Goodness is part of God's character, and that's why kindness is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But God doesn't strike us down. He's kind to us. He protects us from the consequences of our sin because he is good to us. God's purpose in salvation is for our good. So we see that love. And what I want us to see this morning is, is that this whole teaching of uh, sola gratia, by grace alone, is not just some dead orthodoxy or just some biblical teaching that has to do with how we come to faith in Jesus Christ, you know, uh, when we do. But I want us to see that it is a doctrine that carries us along throughout our Christian life and one that we must rejoice and give thanks to. And ultimately, of course, he goes on, and I'm going to sort of stop here rather than going through the rest of this passage. But he talks about ultimately salvation is for God's glory, which is what we're going to talk about uh, next week. But as I close, I just, I just want to use an illustration uh, that um, I read about Roland Hill, who was given a, a large amount of money, and he was asked to dispense this money to a poor pastor. Well, Roland, as he thought about the amount of money that was given to him to give to this poor pastor, thought, I can't just give him this entire amount of money. This is just an enormous amount of money. And so what he did was he gave him a portion of the money with a little note that said, more to follow. And then the next day he gave him some more money with the same note, more to follow. And on regular intervals, he just kept giving him, you know, this money and these notes saying more to follow. Well, C.H. Spurgeon used this story to illustrate what the good things we receive from God always come with, the, with that same prospect of more to follow. And this is what Spurgeon said. He said, when God forgives our sins, there's more forgiveness to follow. He justifies us in the righteousness of Christ, but there's more to follow. He adopts us into his family, but there's more to follow. He prepares us for heaven, but there's more to follow. He gives us grace, but there's more to follow. He helps us to old age, but there's still, still more to follow. And then Spurgeon concludes with this. He goes, even when we arrive in the world to come, there will still be more to follow. Do you believe that? Do you believe in God's grace Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and I want you to hear this. He said, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. The ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. How amazed are you at God's grace? Let's pray.
our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We praise and thank you for your word and for you laying out the salvation that we have received through you and you alone. A salvation that comes to us by grace, not because of anything we deserve. Actually, quite the contrary. You rescued us. You saved us when we were in rebellion against you. Oh, Lord, I pray uh, that your gospel message would have its humbling effect upon us, oh God. Lord, when we wrestle with our sins and the things that seem to to want to squelch the joy of our salvation, that we still would delight in what you have done, just recognizing, God, that we can add not one thing to what you have given to us. And Lord, I would pray today that if there be any here today who do not know you, I don't care whether it's the oldest adult or the youngest child, Lord, that you would so work in their hearts to come to faith in you. And to trust you alone for the salvation that you give so freely. And Lord, may they delight in it. May they rejoice in it. Oh, Lord, I especially want to pray for our kids that grow up and hear these things in the church. I pray for light bulbs to come on. Bright lights to come on. And to see the things that they have heard all these years. And Lord, may it not only illumine their minds, but may it warm their hearts and and cause them, O Lord, to rejoice in you, to delight in you. May it give them a song in their heart, um, Father, and just uh, compel them to go and to tell others of who you are. O Lord, we thank you so much for your great mercy.